Welcome to Backseat Directing, where we talk about movies, TV shows, comics, and more. We're your hosts, Andrew and Aaron. We produce new episodes every Monday and Thursday. And on this episode, we're going over our best movie of 2022, The Batman. Three, two, one, action. Let's turn the lights back on. <laughs> <laughs> Something in the way. Hmm. I gotta be careful when I sing on camera because then I know that you're gonna put it in the episode somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I can see you now. I just had the urge to sing again. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andrew. Last week. Uh, we did an episode, or we recorded an episode, where we went over all the best movies of 2022, some of the worst movies as well, and all that, but we came to the consensus that both of our favorite Batman, or favorite movie, is The Batman. So, we thought, what better way to kick off 2023 than talking about said movie? Yeah, I guess for me, this is kind of the movie to beat for 2023 it was both of our favorite movie of the year last year um you know hold that that gold that gold medal for both of us so it's something we both love that i've been really passionate for us to talk about and i wanted us to do it justice so i tried to do as much research as possible um you know even having like a busy week and all the new year's parties and everything so hopefully we'll get to say everything that we want to yeah we talked about this movie in like pieces of some other episodes one of which being like our favorite comic book movies which was one of our first episodes but we haven't really mentioned the movie in depth at all since it's come out so now that it's been almost a year there's a lot of stuff that has come out about the movie and stuff that we can kind of dive in like the behind the scenes stuff which is where i want to kind of take this conversation more so um, and you have like a, a cool idea of how to introduce the actual story of the movie and stuff like that. So I'm really excited to finally have this episode with you. Yeah, our plan for this episode, what you can expect as a listener, uh, is first we are going to go over our usual route, talking about the summary, talking about ratings, reviews, the, the, earnings. Uh, the earnings of the movie. And we're going to go over the plot in terms of relationships to and introductions to the different characters of the movie as they're introduced. Since it's been a year since it's come out, I figure most people would have seen it. I've seen it three times now, um, which usually I wouldn't have seen a movie that many times if it's only been out for a year, but this is a really great movie. Um, but then after that, we're going to kind of go into some of our uh, things we would change about the movie, maybe some little nitpicks here and there. Uh, we're going to talk about... Oh, I'm sorry. We're, we're also going to talk about the source material. We're going to do our, bring back our source code teg- segment that we haven't really touched on in a little while. Um, and then we're going to close out some, somewhat with our some behind the scenes, some fun facts, some backseat directing, and what we would change about the movie. So that's what's on the docket. Um, we'll, the order might be a little different than what I just discussed, but that's what <laughs> you can expect to hear. Uh, I'm really excited to talk about it. But now that we've had a year to digest it and seen it three times, what do you think about the movie? So when I first saw the movie, we saw it in theaters together, and uh, we saw it at a theater that's like 40 minutes away from my house, so I kind of got to 
dwell on the movie as I was driving home and stuff. And when I got home and my wife asked me, what did I think of the movie? How was it? Because she wasn't able to come. I was like, it was good. You know, it was it was good. I'm still kind of digesting the movie. And the further that I got away from actually watching it, the more and more I wanted to see it again. And the more and more that I developed liking it, you know, and, and started to kind of love the, the style and the cinematography, the acting, the story, the set design, like it all like really grew on me really fast after that first watch. And we talked about on our last episode, the recap of 2022, that something that's a high marker of what makes a good movie for me is rewatchability. And if there's any movie this year that I could sit down and rewatch, it would be this one. This would be the first one on my list. Uh, I watched it and so did you uh, this week in preparation for today. And I was very happy to do so. Yeah, just uh, I was a little bit different than you. I actually walked out the door of the theater completely ready to just turn around, do 180 and watch the movie again back to back. Um, High praise very fast. Yeah, I... This is the kind of Batman movie that I've been waiting for because I love the Arkham video games and I love Batman as a detective and I've always wanted them to do a serial killer story because I'm fascinated by serial killers like a lot of the public as well. That's why we have so many documentaries about them. So this is what I was hoping for is like cat and mouse, Batman using his detective abilities to chase a serial killer. And that's what I've wanted them to make for so long. So when I heard that was Matt Reese's idea for this movie, a serial killer Riddler, I was so excited and I love the execution. Um, I actually, this is the only movie in my lifetime that I've gone back to see in theaters by myself. Um, I've never <laughs> gone to see, it's a kind of a strange experience to go see a movie by yourself for me. I don't think that's like unique. I think probably a lot of people go see movies by themselves, but um, this is but the only so movie I've done it for. To yeah. go with you well, all I, had, the time. I have, I have nobody interested in going to see this movie again because it was three hours long. So I just went and watched it again by myself because I had to see it. And, and I, if you go by yourself, you can watch it as a matinee. It's cheaper. <laughs> still the rest of your day afterwards. Yeah, I did. I watched it at like midday. It was <laughs> nearly empty theater. There was like three of us in there. <laughs> I don't think I've ever gone to the theaters by myself. Yeah, I, I didn't think about it until I went and saw this movie again. And I think if we were to actually get one of those theater packages where we can like kind of go watch a limited amount of movies a month or whatever, I think I would go by myself well, more it's, often. It's a worthwhile experience because you focus on the movie. Like I'm kind of drawn to like comment on different scenes if there's some a friend sitting next to me. Like, like I'll lean over to you and tell you, oh, like that's a reference to this comic that I've yeah. actually read. But this is just nothing but focus, which is probably how movies are meant to be enjoyed. Yeah. Um, Ready to kind of dive into the summary and then start breaking down the movie? Yeah, Aaron, what happened in the Batman 2022? So, a young Bruce Wayne has patrolled the streets of Gotham as Batman for two years now. He's encountered a worthy opponent when the serial killer known as the Riddler appears, leaving riddles at the scene of every crime. A cat-and-mouse game ensues with which weaves Batman between Gotham's criminal underbelly and its elected officials. Throughout this investigation, Bruce learns what it means to be a hero. Very yeah, nice. that doesn't give too much away. From here on out, uh, just a fair warning. Uh, it might take a minute for us to get into it, but we are going to spoil the plot of the Batman. Definitely. Uh, definitely watch this movie. Don't let us ruin it for you, but it, it's a great movie. Hopefully most people have seen it by now. Yes, for sure. So 
let's kind of dive into the ratings here. We got this movie was obviously made last year, 2022. It's weird to say last year. <laughs> it's <laughs> yeah, only January a, 2nd. To so, us, it's the 2nd. This yeah. will be coming out later. Um, but th- this will be coming out on Thursday, so in just a few days. Um, but the rating is PG-13. It's at two hours and 56 minutes long. Like you said, it's a three-hour movie. It's a long movie. It's got you got to invest your time if you're going to go watch this movie. Um, and then the IMDb rating is a 7.8 out of 10, which the Dark Knight is a 9 out of 10. So maybe in my opinion, a little low. I don't know if there's that big of a difference between the two, especially like you said that before we started recording too. Um, the tomato meter uh, for the critics is an 85% on Rotten Tomatoes and then an 87% is the audience score. Yeah, I think that I'd agree with you that it's a little low. For my personal ratings, um, I wouldn't put The Dark Knight at a 9 either. I'd, I would put both of these at at least a 9.0 for me. Um, but I think I would ex- I would have expected this movie to be at least an 8.5 on IMDb from like the general public. I know I got my personal bias. Yeah. That might make it a little bit higher because I love Batman. I love superhero movies. But, um, you know, it'll come to be appreciated in its time. But the, I... The- Budget for this movie is kind of the average of these superhero movies now is two hundred million dollars, and it grossed worldwide seven hundred and seventy point eight million dollars. So brought in a good amount of money for Warner Brothers enough to allow them to make a Batman two. Also, like we've talked about before, it's a little bit harder for movies that are this long, three hours plus to make as much money because longer movies have uh, the they have less show times they can fit into a single day right. and they're selling them for the same price per ticket whether it's an hour and a half or three hours long mm-hmm. so it kind of affects their box office but I've seen comments about this movie saying that it truly feels like they made this with artistic vision first um, and profitability falling behind that, which is really refreshing, especially in the superhero genre. So I'm glad that they put everything they wanted to put in the movie. Um, I wish it was a little bit shorter, but we'll get into that. Yeah, so I have some more stuff to kind of comment about how long it is and whatnot, but let's get into the creators of this movie. Who acted in it? Who made this movie? How did this movie come to be, Andrew? So behind the camera, uh, we have, on, on that side of things, we have Matt Reeves, Greg Frazier and Michael Giacchino are the people I want to talk about. The director, Matt Reeves, he uh, is also known for directing both War of Planet of the Apes and Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, as well as Cloverfield. I say those are his other biggest films. Uh, But the Batman, to me, just kind of like shatters through the ceiling for him. And this this is really game changing. Uh, I could see him being one of my favorite directors. in the future, mm-hmm. but th- I really, really love his work on this movie, and and he wrote for the movie as well. There's a team of writers, uh, I think two or three individuals, and then also credited on IMDb are the creators of the character Batman, Bob Kane and Bill Finger. But the it seems like the bulk of the writing was done by him. When I a lot of my information today is going to come from uh, behind the scenes featurette that is on the Blu-ray disc for the Batman. You can watch it on YouTube. Um, it's called The Making of Vengeance. It's about an hour long, and Matt Reeves, when he talks about he'll, he'll often, when he's being interviewed, will say, like, when I came up with the idea of uh, the, the bat symbol being, well, 
he he worked with them in contingency with the designers to pick the bat symbol but that's a bad example so he'll say like when i came up with the concept of uh him walking the streets as the 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 drifter i connected that to say batman year one he says so like he'll say i a lot so it seems like he did the bulk of the writing with maybe some assistance um and so he's kind of the like we've said before he's the architect and the foreman of this movie being the writer and director which i think is the ingredients for the best movie possible Right, no matter what movie it is. When the writer is the director, it seems like the movie gets made the way that it was supposed to be made most of the time. You know? Like we talked about before. Like it's gotta be weird to be the writer and then to have someone else execute your vision. Yeah, someone else to like facilitate what you imagined. Um, like we, yeah, it's it's interesting. I'm glad that it, it went this way because he, his mind really went the route that like I feel like my mind goes to when I wanted to see a Batman movie of that like it, this movie. So when I talk about inspirations for this movie, and you you can hear Matt Reeves talk about this too, but he's clearly inspired by in comics the Long Halloween by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale, and Batman Year One by Miller and Mazzuchelli. And then for movies, it feels like a blend between a superhero movie with the movie Seven by David Fincher, um, and then it also feels like there's some Taxi Driver in there by Scorsese. So. It, it's a character piece. You get that like that in-depth character study from uh, Taxi Driver. You get these like noir investigative serial killer elements from Seven. The like slow played story that still keeps you drawn in and tugging at the line of the mystery and the dark elements of just the shadowy, dark, realistic crime scenes coming from Seven. Um, it's he really pulled it all together with this, and I he's definitely one of the MVPs of this production. It, it, the movie works because of him. But then moving on to the cinematographer, Greg Frazier, uh, he'll, he'll be known for his cinematography work on Dune, Vice, Rogue One, Zero Dark Thirty, and Killing Them Softly. He's got a lot of credits, um, and his movies are absolutely stunning and beautiful. I want to stop for a moment at our cinematographer to talk about the the shots in this film um is there anything that like certain scenes that jumped out at you or anything that you any comments you have on the cinematography all of it (laughs) (laughs) i love it um we they just so they used anamorphic lenses which i was going to talk about this a little bit later but i guess i can bring it up now um which is not uncommon um a lot of sci-fi um kind of big production studios and movies and stuff use anamorphic lenses. But what they did, what Matt Reeves did and um, the other producers and stuff of Batman is that they went out and looked for old anamorphic lenses that were almost borderline broken and not up to the typical standard that a high production movie like this would use. Um, and they would they would go up to Matt Reeves and be like, look, like these lenses, like they're kind of like old and they're more distorted than normal and and all that stuff and he's like perfect you know like i want the flaws and stuff in the in the shots i want the the kind of texture that that brings interesting um now when i was doing research for this movie i kind of went down like this rabbit hole of what an amorphic lens is um because i've heard of it before i had an idea of what it does you know the first thing that comes to mind is like the lens flares that you see typically they're like blue horizontal streaks that go across like when you see a little thing of light like 
the first movie that comes to mind would be like Star Trek or Transformers is a big one that has those like uh, streaks. But I was like, there's got to be more to those lenses than just those lens flares. So I kind of dived in a little bit deeper of these lenses and we're kind of going out of order of our episode here, but um, <laughs> that's okay. Uh, so here's kind of the comparison between an anamorphic and a spherical lens. Now a spherical lens is the common lens. You know, it's like what most people think of when you say like a camera lens. It's, it's what we're filming on right now. It's what your phone's lens is. It's basically just like the name says, it's the lens is spherical. It's a circle. Um, and then an anamorphic lens, the difference, like when you pick it up, is that that lens opening is a oval shape. Uh, and what that oval shape does is it compresses the image, uh, which makes it take up the full sensor that the camera has. And it like compresses that image because what most or what a spherical is doing is it's on the lens sensor, but it's only taking up that middle strip of it. But this will compress the image to where it's all a square. Okay. Um, and back in the day, before they had computers and stuff, they would put an anamorphic lens on the projector to stretch back out the image. So they would film it with the lens, the anamorphic lens, which compresses everything, gets you more information than what you would normally get. And then they put a lens, anamorphic lens on the projector to stretch it back out so you could watch this super wide shot with all this information. Um, That's cinematic kind of widescreen feeling. Right, exactly. So now that part is done in like post-production editing process where they stretch it out. Um, now, what are some other differences between these lens other than just like that compression? Like what, what are the results of that? Well, the bokeh is more circular on the spherical lens and more oval on the anamorphic, anamorphic lens, which makes sense, right? Because that's the shape of the lens. Now, bokeh is when the image behind what's in focus or in front of what's in focus is very blurred and out of focus. Um, so like lights would kind of shine and have this either spherical glow or this oval glow. Wow, that's really noticeable in a lot of the shots in the movie, like especially where they want you to focus on the Batman because you have to be drawn into like what you can see on his face, which is where the acting and the, the you know the jawline acting and the visual eye acting for Pattinson comes into play. There's one shot where he's hanging. Do you remember at the end um, off of like a railing and he's about to fall into the water as the the Gotham Square Gardens flooding with water and. It's exactly what you're talking about with the bokeh, where it's like portrait mode on your phone. It's so focused, and the the water behind him is just complete blur. That's exactly what portrait mode is. Portrait mode is trying to fake that compression um, and fake the the aperture, which is the f-stop, which is how much that lens is open. Um, but yeah, that, that's exactly what it is. Pulls the focus of your eye line really right. well. Um, now the uh, anamorphic lenses have more of like this barrel distortion. So like the further away you get from the center on the sides and even on the top, it kind of loses focus and kind of goes into that, that blurry bokeh, uh, on its own. And your spherical, um, lens is very crisp and a little bit more sharp 
than the amphoric lens. Now, uh, another difference is the when they rack focus, which is where if me and you are sitting here and the camera's behind you and you're in focus, uh, racking focus would be when they change that focus to me. And then now you're blurry and I'm in focus. When you do that on an amorphic lens, it makes the different objects kind of seem like they're shrinking and growing rather than just like you're looking here to looking there. It's you're getting bigger and they're getting smaller or vice versa. They look like they're getting bigger as you look like you're getting smaller. So it kind of, it has a more filmistic look to it. It looks like uh, artistic. It, it looks, cinematic. Yes. Uh, some would say cinematic. Sure. Definitely. It, it's more stylized. Yeah. A standard lens is more sharp it's more similar to like how your eyes would pick up things you know like we're not just seeing bokeh with our eyes of course but like everything's in focus maybe you're not you know, yeah. i mean i don't speak to what i can do <laughs> yeah but like everything's in focus you know or at least is sharp even if it is like in the background blurred and stuff so just the fact that they were like let's take these amorphic lenses but then let's take almost faulty lenses to give it even more kind of grit and characteristic and um, kind of style to it. Yeah, that's what I want out of a cinematographer, right? Is like, if you hand me a random frame of that movie for me to be like, wow, that feels like the Batman. Like, I don't recognize that shot of like, it's maybe just a ground shot of somebody's feet walking and feels, but it still feels like that movie. That is like such a strength to that movie to recognize it in your gut. Yeah. And before we move on, I want to, give source credit to where it's due of where I got all this information about these lenses. And if you want to learn more, you can go to the source and they can probably do a better explanation of what I just did. I thought yours was great. Um, thank you. Um, so if you want to look up this video that I looked at, it's by Studio Binder. Uh, it's called, uh, what is an anamorphic lens, anamorphic lens versus spherical lens. So look that up on YouTube and you can kind of learn even more because they go in a lot of depth about yeah. what these lenses are and what kind of mood each lens creates. And when you're listening to the anamorphic lens description, it's literally describing the Batman, which is really yeah. cool. I, so my thoughts on the cinematography, the overarching thought would be the movie does a really good job of manipulating what we see and what we don't see. I know mm -hmm. a lot of people complain about the movie being too dark, but the absence or presence of light in the movie um, is very manipulative to our eyes as the audience and controls what we focus on and controls like what information we're privy to from the scene. If they want Batman to feel like the boogeyman, then he's encapsulated in darkness and we can't see him or we only see him in a frame. Or and, he's blurry. Yeah. He's out of focus. Yeah. Yeah. Which, and I think that that is amazing. It, does, it never bothered me from the first time I watched it, the amount of darkness in the movie. So never. I think it was really really much cool like our intro unique. to this episode <laughs> which is yeah <laughs> our absence of light because we're we're such artistic uh, <laughs> filmmakers but i thought that was very interesting and i want to talk about his work with the volume but maybe if we have time in our behind the scenes information the volume yes, is really course. interesting for filmmaking um so then moving on to music which is by michael giacchino and i don't think we've had a bad batman score 
ever. Yeah. They all sound great, but this one is so perfectly in tone and fitting to this movie. And if I could go on and on and on with Michael Giacchino's list of credits, I'll give you a few. Um, he did. He composed for Up. He composed for Ratatouille, Star Trek, Lightyear, Thor: Love and Thunder. <laughs> Uh, he composed for hey, all the, the, the music in that movie was fine. <laughs> it's the movie that wasn't like good. It. All right. <laughs> he composed for the the Spider Man theme for all of Tom Holland's movies, which sounds so great. That those big loud tones, like the brass, sounds so good. Uh, he composed for the Jurassic World movies, which is tough to follow up uh, John Williams with the original Jurassic Park, right? Uh, and then he composed for both Incredibles and Inside Out. And he also recently directed, uh, which it wasn't his directorial debut. But I'd say it's the biggest. He's only has three director credits, and he directed the short feature film of Werewolf by Night. He did the music for it as well, which is kind of get a two in one what when you have him directing the movie. Um, but that was successful and well received too. So his music is so amazing. Um, I, I can't say my favorite Batman theme because of the time period where The Dark Knight came out. Hans Zimmer Batman theme will always be my favorite because of my childhood. Mm -hmm. But this one is just so, such a technical, beautiful masterclass of composing and like the brooding like swell of music that like you just feel it in your chest. Like it's like incredible that that like I said, it Batman definitely encapsulates yeah. this version of Batman for yeah. sure. It has a little bit of like a horror feeling to it, like this yeah. movie does, like a thriller feeling, I should say, more so than horror, but it's yes. so amazing and bombastic. Um, but going into our cast, the, the this is now the other side of the camera. Who's in front of the camera? We have Robert Pattinson as Batman slash Bruce Wayne, Zoe Kravitz as Catwoman slash Selena Kyle, Paul Dano as the Riddler, or in this movie, I believe Edward Nashton would be the other name. Comic books, he'd be considered Edward Nigma. Um, and then Colin Farrell as Oswald Cobblepot or the Penguin, or Oz in this movie, they often call him. So, so phenomenal in this movie. John Turturro as Falcone, Jeffrey Wright as Lieutenant James Gordon, Andy Serkis as Alfred Pennyworth, and Jamie Lawson as Bella Real. And there's some other actors in the movie as well. It's a really big cast, but these would consider the the core members. Who are you who are you most impressed with? So I think heading into the movie, everyone was very judgmental of them casting Robert Pattinson, which people always are. Rich, yeah, like whenever the Batman is announced of who's going to act it, it's a big deal, you know. Uh, but I didn't. I haven't really seen a lot of his films or anything, you know. And like the only thing I've really known him from is Twilight which is not a good example of what could be for Batman. And I think that's where a lot of people's concerns were. Um, but there's a lot of maturity in his acting and a lot of um, depth or uh, what am I trying to say? Where uh, he can act on like a lot of different spectrums, you know, okay. he has range range. That's the word I was looking for. Thank you. <laughs> um, so, I really enjoyed him as Batman and we didn't get to see a lot of his Bruce Wayne and I think a lot of people that's some of the uh, negative reviews of this movie is Bruce Wayne which we'll get into when we break down the story I liked it um, I think it leaves room for character development and growth for the next movie um, and I, I really enjoyed that this movie was a Batman movie first and more of a Bruce Wayne origin where he's having trouble balancing the two and right now he's out of balance 
leaning heavily towards the Batman side of his persona, his personality, you know? Yeah, we'll, um, uh, we'll get into it more, too. I think my nitpicks will be a good segue to talk about the public perception of his Bruce Wayne. Yeah. But I think under the cowl, he just does such a phenomenal job of acting with just his just his physical acting. Like, the physical acting is a huge thing that people don't always focus his on. Movement, the body motions, yeah. the movement, the way, the speed, and the speed and the intention with which he moves the acting of his jawline and his acting with his eyes oh my gosh like yeah. you're able to take so much from such a small fragment of his face with the work of his eyes and you know it's it's really phenomenal he, and he almost it almost reminds me of like a uh, wild cat or something where they move very stealth very slow but then at any moment they can strike and it's like lightning speed you know like just the force behind his punches and stuff and and then like how he like goes back to being very stoic yeah. and stuff very good let's uh and and this is a good segue into us getting into talking about our characters so let's get into the character of the batman how the movie presents him and what we think about it before we do so i just want to say thank you to everyone who has supported the podcast who's listening to this episode who's listened to other episodes we're very grateful for your support as we try to build this community up. Thank you so much. All right, now let's get into our characters. So I'm actually gonna start with the Riddler because that's the first character in the movie, the first main character in the movie that we're introduced to. Yeah. And the beautiful opening shot of the movie is through the the POV of the uh, the binoculars. So. The, the movie has a trend or a theme of POV shots, whether it's there's two shots through the binoculars, there's overhead POVs on the motorcycle, there's POVs as he's jumping off of the, the building and it's showing us whether it's POV facing his face or overhead showing us him gliding down to the ground. Um, I think that that goes big into like putting us in the shoes of the characters. And the movie, even behind the scenes, they'll, in the feature, they talk about how Matt Reeves is very character focused and character driven. And that's my, to me, the number one thing in a movie. Yeah. And uh, those shots were very intentional by him. He said yeah. that he really wanted those. He's, he, he's asking his camera crew, like, where is every possible place that I can put a camera, you know, especially awesome. like on the car and stuff for that car chase and whatnot. And Zoe Kravitz talks a lot about too, how this movie plays on the gray areas of humanity. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's where the opening shot comes in of putting us in the shoes of the Riddler. Cause as we get into the Riddler's motivations, we'll find out that he is somebody who's deeply troubled and been deeply wronged by the system, the corrupt system of Gotham. So we can be in his shoes and sympathize with him, even though he might be a serial killer. That's a, a, what a powerful film does, is make us maybe feel pity momentarily where we catch ourselves and say, hold on, this is a villain. We should yeah. be hating him right now. It also helps us connect with him because he's fighting for a cause that does need to be fixed. Yes. He's fighting for something that is wrong, uh, that he needs to, that needs to be corrected. Uh, he's just going about it in the wrong a, way. Yeah, in the yeah. wrong way. Essentially, I see the Riddler, Catwoman, and Batman on similar missions fighting for their own kind of justice in different ways. You know, you've got... Batman on the one end, Riddler on the other, and Catwoman somewhere in between. Yeah, and you can even argue that Batman's view is wrong as well. Like, yeah, I mean, well, it, in that <laughs> sense, maybe even way next to Batman is like a Commissioner Gordon or right. or like Martinez, like a cop who yeah. is a, a just non-corrupt cop. You know, yeah. 
that, but it's really interesting. They start out with us in the shoes of the Riddler. That's where they choose to open their movie. A powerful statement, right? Putting us in his literal perspective. And that shot gives us so much of the information that we need for the movie where uh, we see the elected official, Mayor Don Mitchell, who's you know, going against Bella Royale in the re-election, and it shows us his family. He's got kind of this cute dynamic with his son, and then it points. It shows the the size and scope of the building too, just to show his wealth, and then it shows the roof, the skylight where he enters. So if you're following the movie, the next shot after that is looking down through that skylight with it cracked open, giving us all the information we need to know. How did the Riddler get inside? You know, it, uh, there is. A monster inside the house to be afraid of um, and then when they finally reveal him out of the shadows standing behind mayor don mitchell uh, it's with this approach that is very much in the way of a serial killer movie like a like i said a david fincher approach and he is quietly calmly waiting in the darkness but when he attacks him he unleashes like this guttural scream so it tells us a lot about the character about paul dano's riddler that he is intelligent patient He's planned this attack. He has a weapon. You know, it's there's basically when you look at serial killers, there is uh, the ones that are crimes of passion, and there's ones that plan. And this is a sadistic, tormented man who planned, brought a weapon in advance, surveilled the location, and snuck in. Tells us a lot about him, but the way he releases that guttural scream also tells us that this is deeply personal. Yeah, you know, and that, the fact that he did it with his hands basically you know with yeah. just that weapon like he didn't just shoot him from yeah. the distance it's you know? emotional to him he, he's he connected to just crime sniper shot him from the roof that we saw with the binoculars but he yeah. wanted to be up close and personal like he says later in the movie his strengths are in, in his brain is not physical but he still makes a point of going after these people when he physically can because he's emotionally connected to his crimes because of his upbringing and his childhood and the way he feels he's personally been wronged. So very interesting, a lot, uh, a lot to be unpacked in that introduction later when we come back to the crime scene. Uh, but then after we're introduced to the Riddler, we are then introduced to our protagonist, the Batman. And in such an interesting fashion. It's my favorite introduction of the Batman. It's my possibly my favorite introduction of any character in a movie ever. Uh, because of, I have that written on my notes too. Best live action intro to Batman I've ever seen. I like, mean, it's the, amazing. It's not just the scene of him walking out of the darkness in the subway. It's everything. It's yes. the narration. It's the music. It's the way that he they convince us as the audience that he's in every shadow because that puts us in the shoes of the criminals of Gotham. The idea that he's in every shadow and lurking and behind every corner is instilled on, into us as the audience because the filmmakers convince us he's in the shadows and oh, he's gonna, he's gonna get the guy who just robbed the convenience store. He's gonna get the people who are vandalizing the, the courtroom. And then he's, when he finally steps out of the actual shadows, it's that boogeyman factor that we keep talking about. It tells us so much about his character to me the way that he slowly walks out of the shadows. This isn't a Batman that took every tactical advantage he possibly could. He didn't set traps and he didn't come at them from overhead. He stepped out of the shadows and said, here I am, what are you gonna do about it? There's no, like he says later in the film, he has no fear for himself. This tells us this is a Batman without fear. This is a Batman who wants to strike fear. And the way he steps out, the way the sound design of the movie, the Foley artists have the his steps in the rain, 
it, it just has the feeling like he's so much larger than life. Like he might as well have rolled out in a tank. I, I feel like he was so menacing and threatening. It's, yeah. it's such a great introduction to him. And the, the voiceover is the perfect counterpart to the visuals that we're seeing. Yeah. Uh, the voice is so soft, I feel like. Yeah. It's, it's soft, but it's explaining what you're seeing, but it's giving you a little bit more into the character. You know, like... I love voiceover work. Uh, yeah, it's really good. And I love, too, how they brought the voiceover back into why we're hearing the voiceover when they show him writing it in his diary. Yeah. You know, and that connection made it, for me, feel like a comic book. It's also another connection to Mazzuccelli and Miller's year one, right? Because there's kind of a diary aspect to that comic book. Yeah, and that's kind of where I was going. Like, in comic books when there's a lot of action and stuff, Invincible does this really well. When they're going through fights, there's still a lot of dialogue going on, maybe more so than like what's in a movie. And uh, it, was, it was cool. It, when I was watching this again yesterday, like I could see the little square text boxes come up in my head as as he's talking <laughs> as if it was like a comic book that's great you know because like a comic book if the character is talking but he's not in the panel it's like a square box and like in my head i could envision that so it felt like it was just coming right from the page which was yeah. really cool but also there's a lot of parallels to our introduction to the riddler because when batman steps out slow and controlled with intention but then when he unleashes himself on the first criminal it is with a brutality and rage that is like deep deeply personal and Pattinson talks about this in the featurette that he felt like when he was Batman taking on these criminals that he felt like every night he was going out, he was kind of reliving the death of his parents. And that connected the, uh, the journey of Batman like emotionally to these random strangers, these criminals that he's fighting. He's that doing this for personal. himself. He's yeah. not doing it to be a hero. Even the line, I'm vengeance. Vengeance is personal. Vengeance yeah. is him taking matters into his own, you know, his own hands. Yeah. It's it's not this true crusader of Gotham that we might come to see by the end of the film or future films. And I think that that personal nature and that that personal the, the violence and the brutality that goes into this um it kind of shows you his faults and it ties him in even more so with the villain of the story who are kind of foils to each other the whole movie, like yeah. mirroring one another. And him saying, I ven I'm vengeance is from the animated series as well. Yeah, so it's also a line I think as we're going through the story, we could kind of plug in a little bit of source code as we go Yeah. rather than backtracking. But yeah, like in the animated sh series, he says... I'm vengeance. And then I think he says, I'm darkness. I'm Batman. I, I am the night. Yeah. I am Batman. Yeah. Yeah. Kevin Conroy, rest in peace. That's his voice work. So beautifully done. But the next uh, character that we're introduced to is we see the, the shining light in the sky and Batman's called to the crime scene where we're introduced to Lieutenant James Gordon, who plays a huge role in this movie. And like you said, tying back to our source code material, is such a big part of the Batman comic books that he's actually the only other character other than Bruce Wayne Batman that appears in Batman alongside in his first appearance. So Batman's first appearance is in Detective Comics number 27, which came out in May of 1939. And in it, he's like a young socialite. He knows Jim Gordon and is brought to a crime scene. At the end, he stops some criminals on a rooftop and reveals himself to be the Batman at the very end of the comic. Would have been a surprise to readers back then, not a surprise to anybody nowadays who doesn't live in a cave, but um, that makes 
all the more importance of Lieutenant James Gordon, Jeffrey Wright's Jim Gordon being an important plot point in this movie. He's a big part of Frank Miller's Year One. He's a big part of The Long Halloween, two inspirations for this story. And he appeared alongside Batman in his very first comic book appearance. And I think that Jeffrey Wright really does a great job in this movie. And like, we see, like we're talking about their initial appearance tells us a lot about his character in the movie. The way Martinez goes to stop Batman and Gordon has to defend him and he says he's with me and bring him in. Um, what, did, what did you think? So this crime scene has a lot more to do than just Jim Gordon. So what did you think of all the information we take in from this crime scene investigation? It's a lot. There's a lot going on. I like the, at the end of this scene, the parallel between Batman and the little kid who found the body of his father yes. dead in the room. And Brilliant. they held the shot on Robert Pattinson's Batman for a long time. And you could just see in his eyes the pain that is being reflected onto him by looking at that little boy who just lost his dad. You know, and like you can kind of see the anger boiling in him as well. So that, that's something that stood out the most from that scene. Yeah, to me, that is the best representation of visual storytelling in the whole movie is the line that they draw from the beginning where he saves that gentleman in the subway or, or outside the train car and he, reaches, he goes to walk towards him and he's terrified of the Batman. Mm-hmm. And then at the, by the end of the movie, this kid who Batman sees reflected in his young self is buried under wreckage in the Gotham Square Garden and Batman reaches his hand out and the kid takes his hand and he pulls him out of the wreckage for him to go from that symbol of fear for even a grown man to a symbol of hope and a savior to like a small child who he sees a reflection of himself mm-hmm. is the most powerful visual story telling element in the whole movie. Yeah. It's and the best representation of his character arc. This scene also introduces the detective side of Batman and yeah. sets the tone for the rest of the movie in that sense. Uh, which I think is why I like this movie so much is that it's like grounded. It is a detective story. It's, it's a serial killer story and it made it feel really real. And in this scene, you can see how kind of smart Batman is when it comes to this stuff of him finding the spot on the floor where the murder weapon was and the, the camera being in the same spot. And he didn't say like, Hey, I think this was where the, the weapon was. Like, come look over here. They just did it through visuals. Like you were saying, they had the camera in the same spot of that tool uh, when we did see the tool there. And then they had the same location of the camera when Batman's boots were there. You know, and then as he leaves that spot, the detective with the camera comes over and kind of looks down. It's like, oh, I should... I should take a picture of this. <laughs> should have missed that. Yeah, like, how, how did you find that? How did I miss? Yeah. yeah. Robert Pattinson says that there's, like, an element to Batman of being, like, a savant or, like, a genius detective. And that this... So this scene tells us a lot about the world and the characters. Because it's, it's one of, actually, the very first scenes that they shot outside of doing test footage. Is it? Yeah. Cool. And it's where Matt Reeves said that they took the approach of, all right, how does Batman move? How does he react in this world? Who is our Batman and how does the world react to him? So I think the final product they came out with is so beautiful because all of the people see him as like 
this haunting figure, like larger than life. And their reactions to him feed my reaction to him because mm-hmm. them treating him like this godlike figure where everyone's eyes are on him. And who is that guy in the bat suit? And what is he doing? There's here? a lot of tension in this scene. Yeah, it's so beautifully held because everybody, you feel everybody looking at him. And then. And that's why these small movements of him and creating that character and that physical acting is so important. Because like we talked about earlier, it's all on patents and that, that movement that when there's a part where he's in the way and somebody says, excuse me, and he kind of just he says, says one nothing, little yeah, step takes back. one small step backward and it's out of frame too. It's just like yeah. builds him as this shadowy figure where he, he kind of glides almost like a ghost or a phantom, yeah. like the way he moves so intentionally. You almost couldn't even see him if that detective didn't like... Yeah. back up real quick and he's, say excuse yeah. me because he's also like a statue right but all his movements are with such intent and purpose yes. and it builds to him being this godlike figure yeah it's it's so beautifully done in that scene and he solves the riddle really fast as well showing that again he's quick um if i had to solve a case with a riddle um it would never get solved <laughs> i wouldn't get past the first clue i'm terrible with riddles i could barely understand what words mean when they're direct (laughs) let alone all intertwined and uh secretive like that one thing that i love about this movie that you just touched on is that in the long halloween which is a comic this movie is very heavily based on the the story takes place over a year so a very long halloween so every holiday the killer known as holiday who ends up being a member of the excuse me so every holiday the killer known as holiday who ends up striking murdering somebody leaving a holiday card and a little token at the scene of every crime uh, it ends up being on every holiday yeah <laughs> i said that too many times but he, he ends up being the alberto falcone so a member of the falcone crime family um, this kind of just plays on that and uses the riddler but that story takes place over the course of a year batman seems so far behind to me which is a big reason i don't like that comic because i feel like he doesn't even truly solve the crime at the end holiday gets his final victim and batman just catches him in the act whereas in this story batman actually takes an active like trying to get ahead of the criminal takes an active uh chase in pursuit in this investigation and it only takes place over a week so it's from october 31st to november 6th if you listen to the audio diaries that's how long the story is so batman solves the the case in a week even if the riddler's kind of dragging him along and uses him to kill falcone there are points where he he's not ahead of him and and loses to him but it doesn't take place over a year, which is yeah. more akin to like a real serial killer investigation taking place over a long period of time. I just feel like in the superhero realm, Batman comes out looking a little foolish in that comic. But I think they made an improvement in this movie. Yeah, I agree. I think that's one of the criticisms that I've heard about this movie is that like Batman's always a step behind and it takes him three hours to figure out and solve his murder. Three hours <laughs> being the length of the movie, you know, that it felt very drawn out. But kind of to the points that you just said, I feel like it's the opposite. I feel like it's it's realistic. Solving murder cases, let alone serial killer cases, takes time, you know? Well, the like, Riddler's had years to plan, and yeah. Batman just stepped into his game. Right, exactly. So I think he did kind of solve things pretty quick. And yeah, at the end, which we'll get into, like the city still got buried in water, but it wasn't... He solved the mystery of himself. And found the purpose of what Batman is going to be moving forward. That's the greater journey, which I think is very valuable. But also, 
the Riddler had a, a group of like a small militia force basically gathered to shoot these people like a fish in a barrel. And if Batman yeah. hadn't solved the mystery in the time that he did, he wouldn't have been there to take out all those guys. So he got there in the way just the, in the nick of time. Yeah, the, the ending was really bad. But it could have been much worse yeah. without Batman, which yeah. I like. I like that the the city gets beaten down and that um, we don't want the Riddler to look like a chump everything either. and that the end of the movie is like this just wrapped in a bow and it's all pretty and clean, you know, like well, we want the Riddler to look like a threatening adversary as well, right? Right. So some aspect of his plan had to be threatening and and succeed in order for that to work. Another thing I wanted to bring up is that the Riddler had five hundred followers. And we have 214 subscribers on YouTube. You're like, telling me we're not better than the can Riddler? Can we not get more than the <laughs> like, Riddler? He's a serial killer, guys. Come on. I was watching this with my wife yesterday, and I was like, dang, he's got more followers than we do. <laughs> That's, <laughs> That's so crazy. Funny. But we've, so we've gone through uh, some of our main cast here. Let's move on to our introduction to Alfred. Um, I, he, he gets introduced kind of in this way where he's like, telling Batman down in the cave to get some rest, to eat, obviously taking that parental role on. Um, in this story, Alfred's the one who taught Batman to fight. He has a line saying that later. He was in MI6, covert you know, British military. And so he's the one who teaches Batman how to fight. He takes that parental role. But we really see Batman slide into that childish demeanor when he's with Alfred especially. He tells him, you're not my father, which is a very angsty thing for a grown adult to say. And I think Alfred takes him back to that place in his childhood emotionally um, because of being that parental figure. And Batman is in a lot of ways in this story. He is somewhat has that like entitled, rich, childish aspect that people of privilege might have. So that's something he's still, I think, working on shedding. And that's something a lot of people haven't distaste for this Batman with, and maybe I even originally did, and it's kind of wearing off for me slowly, um, but somebody in his position of never wanting for anything, like Catwoman has a line in the movie where she says, you must have grown up, grew up rich, because he calls, he, he uses the word choices mm -hmm. uh, towards Annika, I believe, and she sees it as people who are destitute in their position don't have so decisions. many choices. Yeah. yeah, Maybe maybe she doesn't consider some of these things choices, because it's people doing what they have to do to survive. If the alternate choice is, you know, living on the streets or death or starvation, like, is it really a choice? So yeah. I think that, that our Batman is still developing a lot, like you said. And I, I like that aspect of it. Like, Anyone who's going to dress up as a bat and go fight crime willingly, put himself in danger willingly, is a little messed up in the head. Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and has a lot of problems that he's got to work through. Rather than just getting that crisp public figure, Bruce Wayne persona right away, like, I'm hoping we get to see that kind of develop into that and that he finds that balance between the two rather than just it's starting out being that way, you know? Um, someone who, has, who is as broken as he is to go out and be a vigilante, you know, like it, wouldn't, it doesn't make as much sense to me that he has the other side of his life 100% put together. You yeah, know, like, just fractured in two yeah. completely. It's a little bit psychopathic that way. Right, and but, like you, you kind of see the parallel to Iron Man a little bit, you know, because they're both wealthy and stuff. Like... Iron Man couldn't separate the two either. At the end of the first one, I am Iron Man. Yeah. You know, like he couldn't keep the two separate, you know? Um, and I think this is a good way for the Batman to kind of develop into 
finding that balance, hopefully in that next movie or two. Well, this is where Matt Reeves' character work comes into play because he's leaving room for character development. So, right. But then we'll, we'll go into our next character, which is the Penguin, because Batman's investigation uh, leads him to the Iceberg Lounge, where he confronts the Penguin, and also in that office room meets Catwoman there. But I love Oz in this movie. Colin Farrell, I've seen people say he has the best performance in this movie, and every time I watch it, I'm more and more inclined to agree with them. And I feel like he's contending with Robert Pattinson for that best actor in this movie because he even with the small amount of screen time that Colin Farrell has as Oz in the movie it's his first introductory line to Batman is whoa whoa take it easy sweetheart and it's just he like talks down to him he's not afraid of him and he should be so like <laughs> it's, it's just so much arrogance and and I think that he, he plays it so well and the character is so well written. Like he talks down to them again when they have him brought to the searchlight, uh, that floor in the renewal project building. And he says, that's like the worst Spanish I ever hoid. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's la. Am I the only one who knows the difference between L and la? Like he's, he, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. He thinks he's ahead of everybody. Um, and I think that arrogance is key to the penguins character and our introduction to him gives us that right away all these introductions i think are phenomenal yeah i think all the actors and actresses did a phenomenal job like it's very hard to pinpoint like that one person that like when, when they're on screen you're kind of like oh, i wish i wish this person was on screen you know yeah. like i was very content with everyone being on screen like it was they all did a phenomenal job it's really hard to pick who had the best performance you know because you could argue for each of them of why they did such a good job. I think you can argue for all of these people, and Zoe Kravitz's Catwoman, too, who we're about to touch on now, you could argue for her. Her initial appearance is she's taking, reluctantly taking money for drops, which has to do with what we've already touched on of choices. Like, she is doing what she has to do in her eyes, and she, she hates drops, and she doesn't like drop heads. She doesn't want to be involved in this, but she needs money. And right. she very much lives in that moral gray area we talked about where she steals from the rich and gives to herself. Um, and I think that she's very uh, protective of the people she cares about. Uh, she's, she runs up to save Batman's life. Obviously, we see it with Annika, how devastated she is that Annika has been taken and killed. Um, she's an incredible character in this movie. Yes. I agree. Her inter first interaction between her and Batman is a really, really great scene in my eyes and, and very low lit, but the, the scene in Don Mitchell's house, the, the now crime scene where she's taking Annika's passport and she runs into Batman and they fight. I feel like there's so much like magnetism and tension between them. Like even though I feel like you could argue that their relationship and attraction to each other doesn't make that much sense. Um, I feel like I just you just feel it even if yeah. it weren't in the dialogue. I feel like you feel it. Yeah Sometimes you can't help who you're attracted to <laughs> <laughs> You know and, and Batman Has that reputation going on for him and a lot of other iterations of uh, The story, you know, so like it's cool to see that right away in the first first movie Who do we who do we see next? Where do we want to go next in this story? Those are all the characters that I wanted to touch on. That's how that's how we wanted to approach the story was through the relationships, character motivations. What about Falcone? So Falcone, our very first introduction to him is when uh, Batman has Catwoman investigating for him in the what's it called? The it's like section or below forty four. Yes. The the VIP so to speak section of the iceberg lounge, and as she's 
beginning to argue with that woman, uh, Oz and Falcone approached them and John Turturro just really, I feel like when I think of him, I think of Don't Mess With The Zohan, where he's hilarious, or I think of Mr. Deeds, where he's hilarious. Or even Transformers. But I forget about that, yeah, <laughs> but I forget about all those roles right away when he steps on the screen as Falcone and just like caresses Zoe Kravis's face. Like, it has this feeling of like, I have so much power over you. And this feeling of like, he is the the richest guy in the room and he'll do what he pleases and he has this strong evil menacing presence so easily i feel like he just blankets the scene with it um and it seems to just like ooze out of him i i felt like he was very threatening and just the way he speaks is like this soft way like i don't need to raise my voice people will lean in and listen to me like he just seems powerful yeah um later in the story we find out that he is Catwoman's father. And also murdered her mother and murdered Annika by strangling them, which is a very aggressive, personal, sadistic approach to murder. Yes. Um, I have a question that my wife actually asked yesterday. Did Falcone know that she was his daughter the whole time? Or was he surprised when we saw her confront him saying, Dad? I think he was surprised. Surprised. Yeah, because the way that he approaches her in the beginning is like, don't be a stranger around here. Like, like I feel like he... I think watching it back a second and third time, you could make clues of like, oh, he knows her. But then I also said to my wife, I was like, well, he probably greets a lot of ladies like that and sweet talks a lot of ladies as if he's very close to them. As if he's a father figure to them, that they can feel safe with him yeah. and that he can take advantage of them. I took my first approach was that he knew in the original viewing, but now in the third viewing, I feel like it was a surprise to him. Because doesn't she say to him that he, she says, like, I'm your daughter, or she says something to that effect? She does. She, like, introduces herself as if she didn't know that he knows. Right, so I don't know if he knew or not, and I think that's maybe something left for interpretation. I think the first time I watched it, he didn't know, and then maybe this third time watching it, maybe there was hints of like some clues that maybe he had an idea. But I think overall, he didn't, because he seemed pretty surprised at the end. Yeah, that's, that's the perspective I take on it, too. But the, everyone in the cast did a great job, and I, I'm excited to now talk about some behind-the-scenes facts. Yes, let's dive into behind the scenes. This stuff is like the most fascinating stuff. Like, how are movies made? It's I could watch these like little behind the scenes documentaries like all day long. They're so interesting, and I kind of already touched on part of mine with the difference in lenses and stuff, and how they used the old, almost broken lens to film this movie to give it character. Um, what are some of the behind the scenes stuff that you want to bring up? So one of the things that I want to talk about is like the technology for this film. So like. The volume as well as the practical filmmaking. So we'll start with the volume, which if you haven't heard of this, is this technology that Star Wars has used in the past where they use uh, giant screens, giant LCD screens to portray an image so that instead of a giant blue tarp, which we'll see on a lot of behind the scenes sets like Avengers Endgame, where they're then going to go in in post and, and use CGI and special effects to introduce the environment, they'll use the giant screens to 
project the environment in front of the actors so that there's natural light coming onto the actors from the sunset. I, I shouldn't say natural, but actual light. Practical. On, yeah. Practical, practical light. light coming onto the actors from a sunset coming off of a screen rather than, you know, lights from a, a stage light. And yeah. then also the actors can play off of that environment and it helps them imagine the environments there and physically be in the presence of the scene rather than a blue tarp. And they, what they do is they take all of these small LCD screens and connect them to a giant panel to make one gigantic screen that they then turn into something like a Gotham City skyline. Or they're using the screens in close-ups of Robert Pattinson as he's riding on a motorcycle and they get like a close reaction of his face. And the, the edge, maybe because of that anamorphic lens, is more blurred out so they can use a screen there and it can, it can work and look realistic. Um, then the, the biggest thing though, where I think it works is the Gotham City skylines because I would have never known that wasn't some kind of actual skyline without watching behind the scenes. Yeah, the place that you're talking about is the location that they meet up when he shines the bat light yeah. signal up into the sky. And they're like kind of on top of this skyscraper that doesn't look like it's finished at the top or something. And yeah, you're right. Like those shots look beautiful. Uh, and it looks like a city is out there. It looks like the sun is actually right there. You know, like yeah. it... It lights the characters up really well, creates really crisp silhouettes, uh, which is really cool. And from my understanding, it's very hard to replicate proper lighting in CGI. You know, like they can do it, they can, it's gotten much better. But anytime that you can have practical light, uh, the better, you know? Yeah. Light's gotta be the hardest thing, I believe, as well as like small facial movements to replicate with CGI. The, the using the volume allows them to actually manipulate the environment with that actual practical light on the actor's face. So an example that they use is if they wanted to film a shot at like golden hour, uh, then in, in practically doing so, they'd have to film a shot at sunrise and then wait all the way hours later till sunset just to maximize on the time. Yeah, golden hour is like that. It's almost not even an hour. It's kind of like 45 minutes or so, right as the sun's rising or right as the sun's setting, like right before it goes behind the horizon. And yeah, like that's not a lot of time, you know? And like, they'll literally be on set all day trying to make it work because they're waiting until the afternoon to try and get that shot right again. But with the volume, they can essentially freeze control manipulate time they can make it any time of the day and then they can freeze it there because you can keep filming that scene for hours with that time of day being replicated on the screen and it's so you know time saving and effective for the the set and for the actors and they they can still play off that environment even if it's not the actual sunlight on their face it's it's really really incredible technology and they spend months beforehand planning and animating and developing the city so that it's a real world city because this this technology has been used before but it's often for like an environment like a, a desert scape or like a mountain or a, you know a tundra but this was a city which they wanted matt reeves wanted it to live and breathe so there's cars moving down on the streets there's lights in the distance and there's an actual active cityscape and the clouds in the sky actually move so there's a textured movement living environment to this backdrop that they created and they had to design they could the other cool thing about it is that they can hand pick and choose their design for the city of gotham they can make it look how they envision gotham to look and just design it to appear on a screen and they don't have to find the perfect location so this technology is just so incredible and i bought into it i bit hard when i watched the movie it 
it feels like Gotham is a character in the movie. We almost should have gone over Gotham as one of our character introductions because it's such a valuable and huge part of the Batman. Yeah, and not only did they use the high-tech technology like that, but they also did a lot of practical stuff as well. Like, I'm pretty sure the Iceberg Lounge was, like, built and they had a lot of different sprinklers and water systems to make it wet because it's always raining in Gotham and stuff and to give it that that shining glistening look um, yeah for light reflecting off of the water and stuff like that's all practical stuff for uh they so they filmed in chicago and liverpool in in england and they for the exterior of the the location for the funeral they filmed in liverpool and then in in the interior they had these giant warehouses where they built that whole set basically from scratch Mm -hmm. and then they practically went through it and destroyed it with the car that you see drive through the funeral and crash and then for the they they filmed i believe it was another location in liverpool where they filmed the gotham square garden the interior of that giant like uh stage and theater and they flooded that with five hundred thousand liters of water and I'm American, so I don't know what a liter is, but 500,000 sounds like a lot. <laughs> yeah. But that's what Robert Pattinson called it, 500,000 liters of water. And so they're practically using all this water, like so many practical effects in this movie. And it's so beautiful. I don't know if you've seen the behind the scenes of the, the car scene with, uh, with, with Oswald and the Batman, but have they I? have like this gyroscopic piece of technology that holds a car so that they can manipulate it and twist and turn and rotate the, the the car which just sits on this this piece of machinery and then that they can in post with the screens or with special effects add in the movement of the background but it really gives the actor this 4d experience of like almost it's almost like a roller coaster ride like right. a universal and you're rotating around feeling the movement of a car you're at that point the actors are reacting rather than just acting yeah. you know like they're not having to create that motion that motion is already there and they're reacting to it, which makes for a better performance for sure. But could you imagine the pressure for the entire crew when you're about ready to destroy an entire set <laughs> by <laughs> yeah. running a car through it or flooding it? Let's like, get this take right. <laughs> like if you don't get that take right, that costs a bunch of money and a bunch of time. You know, so like everyone has to be in sync. The extras, yes. the cam, there's so much pressure on the camera operators. You know, it's as if you don't pull focus right, or if you miss the the timing of the blocking and miss your shot. Yeah, you've you've driven a car through the set. Let's get a hundred more chairs back in here. And that has to be the a consideration that these producers and directors and stuff are having to take into thought is like. Do we want it to look really real and do this practically, or do we want more freedom and do it digitally um, to where you can kind of nitpick on things and stuff, but it may not look as realistic as the real thing. You know, like, you know, sometimes we're recording and our camera turns off or something, or like, obviously we're not nearly on the same level of production, but stuff happens, you know, like, Say one of the cameras just turned off. Oh, we didn't get that shot. Well, get the car out of here, put all the chairs back, fix the stage, fix the windows. Bring all the, the extras windows. back in. Yeah. Crazy, huh? Yeah. The it's pressure. really high level technical filmmaking. I feel like practical effects are so impressive for that reason. And like they deserve to be applauded for that, certainly. But all that stuff together, it, it just works in continuity so well and so cool. The The screens that they use, like... And, and I just remembered a POV shot that I 
neglected to mention earlier, which is the POV shots on the car. Some of the best shots in the movie where the car, the, the cameras held alongside the wheel of the car or over the, the top, the hood of the car, like the POV shots are all over this movie and it, it looks so good with the practicality when you're actually driving a car. I'm pretty sure they actually drove the car through the flames they did. for the big shot of the movie, right? Yes. That's the got to be the biggest practical effect in the movie. Like, yeah, it was so cool. I, I, the car chase scene is one of, if not my absolute favorite shot or scene of the whole film. Um, it just gets me like pumped up every time you watch it. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, let's go. <laughs> but at the same time, it all seems grounded. It seems imperfect. You know, like they're not going around doing all these crazy driving maneuvers that like. I could never imagine being possible, you know, like there's no way I could drift a car like that. Like this feels like the penguin Oz actually got into this car and is driving away and that he's not a professional stunt driver, Yeah. you know? And then even with the Batman, same thing, like he's got a powerful car, but he's not necessarily the best driver ever, you know? And it, it feels like that. It feels grounded. It feels rough. It feels rugged, you know, like one point when Oz knocks the... 18 wheeler and it kind of the back end starts tipping and one of the trucks like hits the batmobile and it like scoots over to the side you know and then keeps going like so cool yeah Uh, and then of course like you mentioned all the camera shots you know the mounted shots this was one of the spots where uh, matt reeves was like where's everywhere that i can put a camera like we're out everywhere on this car where can i mount a camera you know, and like that's what you do. Yeah, you do them favors in the editing room when you get them as much footage as possible to work with. You're doing favors, but then also you're giving them much yeah. more work because they have <laughs> so much footage to go through, and they have to piece it all together in the right order and all that stuff. It's it's definitely a hassle, but at the same time, it it tells a fantastic story. Like one of the talking like you edit or something yeah (laughs) one of the coolest shots is like after he jumps lands on the ground and it the batmobile like speeds up and crashes into penguin's car and makes him spin out he like the batmobile drifts to the side and the camera's mounted to the back looking to the side of the car and it like drifts around and then it stops and you can see the the tail of the batmobile but then you see the crashed car in front of it it's like, man, that was a cool shot. Lines up perfectly. The The best shot of the movie has got to be when the upside down shot from Penguin's perspective. The, again, POV of Batman walking towards him with the flames He's behind like, him. Yeah. <laughs> the way he just leans down and the fear. But it's they sold the movie to us so hard with the shots we're talking about because both the scene we talked about earlier where he pummels that criminal to the ground and the scene of him driving the car through the flames are in the trailer. And yeah, all, pretty much... All of the shots from the trailer are from the third act, which is very common. Well, the first act shot is I was probably already sold on the movie from the footsteps of him walking into the crime scene and the lights flashing. I felt the the seven, the movie seven vibes right there. And that was like, okay, um, I mean, I was going to see it anyway, but now I'm going to see it a lot more excited. Do you like seven? That movie? I I love seven. I think I put it when I talked to my wife last night about movies, I put it in my top three movies of all time. Yeah. I know you enjoyed it. We watched it together not too long ago. It's definitely a good movie. It's really good. And I'm good. glad that this movie took inspiration from that. I think you it feel was it, a, for a sure. Good, a good match, for sure. David Fincher's such an incredible, controlled, brilliant filmmaker, and he's got a new movie coming out this year, now that it's 2023, yeah. I can say this year. And it's year. cool that there's... Um, that they took inspiration, but Matt Reeves took his own like view of how to shoot it, too, because 
Uh, David Fincher has like the locked off shot. He wants all the cameras to be perfect. He doesn't want it to feel imperfect like a person's holding it. But then Matt Reeves is the opposite. He's like, we're going to lock this camera onto the car. If the car's shaking, the camera's shaking. If the car splashes water, the camera gets wet. Like he wants it to feel like yeah. you're, you're in it rather than it being perfect. And it's cool to like compare different styles of how to make movies. Yeah, I think there's a handheld shot in the Batman too. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty that I didn't notice, but the big one I noticed is over Batman's shoulder when they come to the searchlight and Catwoman has uh, Detective mm-hmm. Kenzie and this kind of, oh, this panic of what's happening. They start bolting forward. Um, I, I like handheld a lot. You feel the, like you're in the scene, but let's move on to Easter eggs, which I'm sure that I didn't notice all of them and I'm going to get run through the ringer for this but here's the easter eggs that I noticed when I just rewatched the movie for the third time in the very opening of the movie uh, the grocery store that gets robbed by the guy in costume is called Good Times Grocery which Good Times is a movie that Robert Pattinson starred in so maybe that was on purpose maybe not but <laughs> also the the guy with the costume he's wearing I believe is meant to be a drop head which is basically the movie's version of a crackhead because uh, drops is the drug uh, because later on in the movie you can see on a Gotham Renewal Project poster there's a picture of that headpiece with uh, a circle drawn around it and a line through it like no uh, the symbol for no <laughs> <laughs> and and so I think that he's the costume he's wearing is a drop head which is interesting um, like kind of adds to world building. I always just thought it was like some nondescript, you know, Halloween costume, right. you know, strike fear. Um, and then the next thing I would touch on is the cards the, that the Riddler leaves as clues there. They can be linked to different Batman villains and I've heard different perspectives. The first one to me is obvious. It's an owl and it says from your secret friend. So the court of owls, a relatively newer Batman villain that's super interesting and maybe we'll get to see in the sequel. Um, and the, the second card I, I thought was a reference to the Mad Hatter, but some think is a reference to Hugo Strange. It's like a balding crazy mad scientist. So I saw Mad Hatter, but Hugo Strange is another Batman villain who's kind of known for evil villainous scientific experimentation. Um, and then the next card has a blonde girl, which which she's holding something, which some people think is a flower. Uh, so some people think more maybe Poison Ivy. I thought because she's blonde, maybe Harley Quinn. Um, and then the final card we see is meant to be delivered to Bruce Wayne. It's just a pair of eyes surrounded by darkness. I had no clue what to make of that, but some people think that since it's a, it might be a reference to the Mad Hatter through the Cheshire Cat, because the Cheshire Cat, you can just sometimes just see his eyes um, when his whole body's invisible. So maybe that's the reference there. My next Easter egg would be um, the Bat Cave being under Wayne Tower um, is kind of something I think could be taken from Scott Snyder's uh, Zero Year storyline. Uh, when Batman's still in his early days, he says that he's trying to. Uh, remain close to his mission, remain close to... He's trying to stay close to the crime in Gotham and close to Crime Alley where his parents died so it can remind himself of what he's fighting for. So that's why the Batcave in that storyline is under Wayne Tower and not under Wayne Manor like it would traditionally be in something like The Dark Knight. Uh, and then we see Min and Max, the twins, that traditionally in comics and TV shows work for Two-Face, but they're working at the Iceberg Lounge in this movie. I think they'll probably end up working for Two-Face if he has a role in the movies. So we get to see the twins, and obviously Two-Face works with twins because he has an obsession with duality in the number two. Uh, then we have Catwoman says to Batman at one point, what do you live in a cave? Obviously a <laughs> reference to the Batcave. Uh, Edward Elliot is referenced in the movie. There's the sequence where they're kind of 
Riddler's unveiling the truth in a way about Thomas Wayne, and they show the the reporter Edward Elliot, who was trying to unmask the truth of the with the Wayne and Arkham families, and he ended up getting killed by the mobs in the process. Now, there's also a point where it says in all capital letters "hush" in reference to being paid hush money uh, to, to the reporter that he refused, and this is all a reference to uh, Thomas Elliot, who is the son of Edward Elliot. Uh, he goes on to become the villain Hush, who is also somewhat compared to other villains, a relatively new Batman villain, who the the son of a rich uh, Gotham family, his parents end up getting killed. Um, he blames it on Thomas Wayne and then goes after Bruce Wayne and as vengeance because Thomas Wayne is dead as he grows older. He goes to such lengths as getting surgery, plastic surgery, and I think he performs it on himself because he's a, a surgeon. Um, he's not a plastic surgeon, but he does plastic surgery on himself to make himself look like Bruce Wayne and take his identity and his mission to, to destroy Bruce Wayne's life. So that's a very interesting villain. Maybe that Easter egg means we'll get a touch of him as well. At the end of the movie, Catwoman says she might go to Bloodhaven, which is a reference to the city where uh, it's, it's in the Gotham uh, world because Nightwing, when he graduates from Robin to Nightwing, goes to fight crime on his own in Bloodhaven. That becomes his city. Uh, then we have, let's see, my my final reference um, would just be the most obvious one, uh, that Joker appears at the end of the movie, <laughs> which what? We, we all know that's the Joker. That's easy to see. And I'm sure I'm missing lots of small stuff or maybe things that I'm forgetting to say, but there's a lot of fun little yeah, you things have, you can pick up on. You have the scratches on Falcone's face. There's a reference, reference to, to the to long Halloween. One. He has it in both, I think. And year one, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I know he has it in Long Halloween. Yes. Um, Martha's mental illness, which can be taken from uh, Earth One. Um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. And even um, uh, Alfred, his like backstory and stuff. That's a relatively new Earth thing as well in comics. Too. Yeah. But Him we being we like a battle-hardened uh, military veteran. You're you saying know. Earth One? Is that? You meaning Earth One and not Year One? Yeah. Okay. Um, I haven't read that yet. I, have, I haven't either. I have Batman. But, I have Batman Earth One, yeah. but I haven't read it. Um, the there. I also touched on earlier the references to uh, the Long Halloween and uh, Frank Miller's Year One. Yeah. Uh, the, obviously, I think kind of the overarching plot comes from Long Halloween, and then their take and approach to Batman, and also the Matt Reeves initiation of the Drifter persona, which is. Batman in kind of just this like vagabond outfit going through the city um, is definitely taken from year one. And then his relationship to Jim Gordon also is taken from year one. So the, those comics are really top, top tier, considered top tier, tier comics for Batman. I'm not a huge fan of the Long Halloween, but year one is a great read. Yeah, and it's good that they're taking a bunch of inspiration from all these comments and comics and blending them into to one movie, you know? And, I think Christopher Nolan did a good job at that as well. Something I think um, you can catch in this movie too is parallels between Bruce and Edward, which I've already touched on parallels in their introduction, but also we know that they're both orphans. Um, you know, they both been through their struggles. Um, and then I think that they're both very intelligent. They're both wearing a costume, wearing a mask, have, hiding their true self. Um, they're both going on a, they're a, a journey for their version of justice. And then they both lived in Wayne Manor because the Wayne Manor was donated and became an orphanage for Edward Nashton. And then at the very end of the movie, we see Batman remove the carpet and reveal this chalk plan on the floor, which mirrors Batman's 
investigation, which was covered in chalk on the floor when he was at one point in the movie as well. So they really draw the line between these two, um, which is very interesting. But I'm ready to go into my nitpicks if you want to uh, try to argue them. Yeah, welcome everyone <laughs> to our backseat directing segment. This is where we both sit in the director's seat and talk about the things that we would change, maybe some of the things that we'd keep the same, or even go over some of our nitpicks of the story. And again, like every movie, every story is gonna have nitpicks. Every story is gonna have a little bit of holes. Like it's just how it works. These are some of the things that we picked up on and that maybe we would change. Andrew, what do you got? Yeah, the way this usually works is I'll hit, I'll, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna start with my lighter ones, my nitpicks, and Aaron's gonna tell me why I'm being overly critical. Um, <laughs> the, so my first one is, when Gil Coulson has the bomb around his neck, excuse me, at the funeral, and it blows up in Batman's face, why doesn't Batman turn away or cover his face or dodge when the timer shows him how much time is left and the Riddler literally counts down the explosion and Batman just stares face first into it? So, that, I mean, that's obviously a small complaint, because, but why? Why not do something like your Batman react? Yeah, I f to me, it makes me feel like Batman doesn't care what happens to him and that he is completely broken and that like, yes, he wants to find vengeance and stuff, but at the same time, he's not afraid to die. And if this is that, so be it. The way That's I, how I've interpreted that scene. The way I guess I also saw it would be to turn away would be to prioritize himself and would be to give up on a citizen of Gotham, even if it's a corrupt citizen. To turn away and protect himself would be giving up on him when even though there's probably nothing he can do. It, it does seem like the smart things to turn away. Yeah, I think he was kind of waiting to the last second to see if he's going to give him any information. And even in the explosion when he's flying backwards, he does have his hands in his face. So like he apparently got them up enough to protect his his chin and yeah, jawline he, He's not burned at all. Yeah. Um, Let's go on to the next one. Um, <laughs> this one I just thought of on my third watch. Um, why didn't the detectives just look at where the pictures were taken from to find the Riddler? Because the, the Riddler forces Jim Gordon to produce all these photos, and later come, other ones come out later of the like captain and everything. There's pictures taken from the same angle where you see people outside the Iceberg Lounge. And later when he shoots Falcone, you look up at where he shot from, and they're like, he's been here the whole time. Well, that's where he took the pictures from. He sent the... So why didn't you guys just look in the surrounding area of where the pictures... Like, I don't know how they didn't catch him sooner. He's literally in the same room where he took those pictures from. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, that definitely the Batman should would make sense, right? To do that, maybe they I, thought he was on the roof or something. They're like, no, he's too smart for that. But at the same time, it took you three watches to figure it out. You know, so like maybe like in your in the moment. But yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm stretching here. Right? Uh, that, that's a very good point. Like, why why didn't they just look up there? Maybe they just thought like. I don't know. Yeah, it's strange. Yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's something that I, would, I didn't think about at least till the third time. So definitely a nitpick. Um, then my, my last nitpick is when Alfred gets blown up, a bomb goes off in his face and he is comatose. Wakes up in a hospital bed after near death. His Batman, his son, Bruce Wayne is sitting there in a chair next to him and he says, this is the moment I've been waiting for. You lied. <laughs> no, like... Good to see you. No, glad you're okay. Like we can get into this later. Just like you, it's so, it's so like petty. Yeah, it definitely is. 
but I don't necessarily have a problem with that scene. Um, again, I think it kind of just shows how imbalanced, how how much rage he has, and how immature he is as a person. You know, and I think in his mind, he's thinking like he's alive, he's here, he's in the hospital, he's gonna be okay. Like I don't think he was thinking of that, which is very selfish, like you said, very petty. Um, but the thing that he's been fighting for this whole time, he just found out was a lie, which again, it did come from a lying mob boss. But again, he's not in the emotional state at that point to really put that, those pieces together. Um, you're right, it definitely makes him look really bad. But again, I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. If they bad. took a different approach and they made him be more sympathetic at that point, I would have been fine with that as well. Like know? I said, I've I've been softening to this Bruce Wayne exterior. And I think that if you look at it through the lens, like we talked about earlier, that he's like, he's been privileged and he wears, and, and that's something that he hasn't yet escaped. You know, it's like baked into his DNA because it's his childhood. You can't change right. your childhood. So maybe he is a little entitled and, and, you know, vain and focused on himself, even though outwardly he doesn't care about his own life and puts Gotham first, there's still like these seeds of that in him. So it can make sense to that lens. I just love the relationship with Michael Caine and Christian Bale's uh, interaction so much, like yeah. that fatherly dynamic. We're just I hope not, we grow to that. We're just not at that point yet, Yeah, which yeah. is cool. Like if it was the exact same as the Dark Knight in that trilogy, like then it wouldn't be its own thing, you know? Now you, now you got to take on my big nitpick. Okay. So that is that I think the movie, especially upon a third viewing, feels really long. And it hurts its rewatch factor, which I know is something that's important to you. If I were to make a change to this movie from our backseat directing position, I would cut out the last 15 minutes of the movie. Right when he uh, has that character arc close out for him, he holds the hand of that person he's saving and... and Let's, and lets them go out into the sky as they're bay flighted away, and he's looking off in the sunset. His narration says that he has to be more. He has to be a symbol of hope. That's the end of his character journey. It's a beautiful shot to end on of his his face. He's covered in soot and mud after this, everything he's been through. I'd end it there. It doesn't give you the chance to close out his relationship with Catwoman, but I would address that in the next movie. And I think the movie just ends so much more beautifully right there. Because the next thing we go through is an unnecessary scene with Joker that I don't think needed to be shoehorned into the movie. If anything, could have been a, an act like a like after credit scene. And then we go into the the cemetery scene with Catwoman. That it, it just makes the movie feel all that much longer. I think we could have cut some of the fat out in the middle of the movie too. Kind of when he's maybe following Catwoman in the car and he's in the motorcycle and like. There's scenes that they just could have conveyed, like her going to save Annika. Like they they showed it enough when she got to the house. They could have cut out some of like the following scenes. Him riding on the motorcycle is a long sequence when he's going underground. Back there's there's so much of like transition sequences of traveling that they could have cut out. Because there's one point in the movie where he just says like he they say the Riddler wants to talk to you, and he he's going from the Riddler's apartment to the prison, and they just cut from they say that line and cut from there to the prison, and it's like I didn't need anything else. I know why he's here. I'm sure he drove here. I think that that would have been an approach that could have sped the movie up a little bit. Yeah, you're right. This is a long movie. Um, it, for me, it didn't hurt the rewatch value of it. I enjoy longer movies, but I guess it does limit the amount of times that I could rewatch it. But it doesn't limit the enjoyment that I have when I do get to rewatch it. Um, it just sometimes when they're like doing those really long transition shots, I'm like, 
I got other stuff I want to do with my day. <laughs> like, not not like I don't want to be watching the movie, but I'm like, but when you be were sitting there for three hours is a big chunk of your day. You're not wrong. But when you were in the theater watching it for the two times that you went and watched it, were you thinking that? Were you thinking like, man, there's better things I could be doing right Definitely now? Definitely the second time. Not, I guess maybe that's a bad turn of phrase because that sounds that's like, what you meant. That's, that, that sounds like there's, there's other things I'd rather be doing than watching the movie, but, um, I'm just busy, but the, and, which is the reality. But the second time I watched it, the seat was uncomfortable. And when you're oh. in a three hour movie with an uncomfortable seat, you notice the length of the movie a lot more. Yeah. The first time definitely was only thinking about the movie, but the movie's so beautiful that you can appreciate watching it. You're not, you know, you're not thinking that the whole time. It's yeah. it's a gorgeous movie to watch. I appreciate those transi- transitional shots, at least in this movie. Some movies uh, have it. Like, yeah, it kind of feels drawn out. I think, like you said, taking out some of those transitional shots later on in the movie, you know, because it's kind of already developed the tone of the movie, you kind of already get what's going on. You see the world because those transitional shots help build the world, you know, and this is the first movie of the franchise. Um, but yeah, like towards the end, they could probably cut some of that out, sped up the, the plot a little bit. And then I would have been fine with the ending where you suggested it ending, you know, right after he realized he needs to be a symbol of hope. He needs to be a hero and that he needs to change um, in order to actually make real change in the city of Gotham. Um, I'm, I'd be fine with it ending there too. I think that would cut out 10, maybe 15 minutes, making it an hour and 40 minutes or two hours and 40 minutes ish opposed to the two hours and 56 minutes. Um, I agree. We did not need the Joker introduction. Um, I think it feels very forced. Yeah. It's, it's just, I'm, I've been in the mood. Like you said, I've been through this movie for so long. It's almost been three hours. Like I'm, I'm already invested in what's going to happen next kind of thing. You know, like I already want to see Batman's journey next. I already know of the Joker and what he brings to the table. So like, I'm already anticipating that, you know, I, I don't need to see that scene, you know, necessarily at the end of this movie. Um, I think, uh, the dark Knight trilogy did it a little better where they just, and we found this card. Yeah. You know, and such a small, yeah, something subtle. We didn't get to hear his voice. We didn't get to hear the iconic laugh. We didn't get to see what he looked like at all in that version. It was just like, Oh, the Joker's coming next. <laughs> you know, yeah. like it, it kind of built that excitement. Um, I think this one kind of does too, but at this point we've seen a lot of variations of the Joker. Um, and some of which weren't as good as others, you know, like we have the ones from the Suicide Squad and all that, like... Jerry Leto. Yeah, it, it, it definitely didn't hit as hard as the Dark Knight's version. Um, yeah, and but then like we said, maybe we also, nothing ever will for us, for our generation. Yeah, it might not. And then we also had the Joker, like, solo movie, too, which I think that's a movie that you could either love or hate it, you know, depending on your view. So, like, since that one has such an artistic take to it, it's like, wow, like, I've seen a lot of Joker right lately, you know? So, maybe a little bit of Joker fatigue. So, would that be your change for the movie is cut out the scene or cut out the presence of the Joker in this movie? Yeah, I don't need it. I'm not mad that it's in there, but I I would say it's like a nitpick kind of thing. I have another nitpick that came to mind um, when I was watching this. Uh, movie again is that 
show give us a little bit of a scene of how he changes from the Batman to the Drifter and then back to the Batman. You know, like because he's doing so in what seems like quick transitions. You know, he's the Drifter one moment, then he's Batman uh, following the Catwoman and stuff. Like, just show me something. Like, does you just have... wanted more shirtless scenes. No, not even like him like <laughs> fully taking it off. Show me how he's changing so fast. You know, like, does he have, like, a little mechanism that, like, pulls up the cape, you know? Like, kind of like the wingsuit that he had where the, the cape disappeared and things popped off of his suit and stuff. Like, does he have something like that that helps him kind of fold down the, the suit really quick? And then I'd imagine now some, he has that jacket. Like, some parts of the costume he's probably wearing underneath his drifter clothes. Right. So that's probably what helps make it quicker. Yeah. So I was thinking that just a small little nitpick. I mean, it doesn't take away from the story for me not I'm, having it there. I know he's but. look. He's very handsome in this movie, and he's got a killer jawline. But I'm I'm not asking for more scenes of him changing. I think he's shirtless enough, buddy. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's another interesting thing that we could bring up. Which I I know this episode's going on and on, but just love talking about this stuff. Is that. Robert Pattinson refused to do steroids for this movie, which I think is pretty cool, you know, especially going into a superhero role where it's expected almost mm -hmm. to have this hulking, almost unrealistic physique. And he was like, nope, we're not going to do that. And he doesn't even look that fit in the movie you know like he doesn't he looks like he has a very attainable physique um which for me i'm fine with um i think i would like to see him maybe develop a little bit more as the movies go on in terms of his physique you know like get a little bit more muscle mass and stuff like that um kind of like hugh jackman did like over the course of the his years working on Wolverine you know like the first X-Men like he didn't look that crazy as he does now like and I'm not even saying he has to take it to that extreme but like just put on a little bit more body mass maybe um he doesn't need to be ripped you know well, like the thing like not even just steroids but there's a lot of different performance enhancers that people in Hollywood use and I think to attain the physique a, a more developed physique than he has now and that kind of physique I think you're talking about it is something that really takes more of years than months because we see a lot of actors do it in months because of PEs and I, I can appreciate him not wanting to do that and like do that to his body and to do it naturally so um, I think first and foremost is the performance for me at least and if he can keep himself healthy and well enough and do what he needs to do to do the next movie. I mean, some of these actors talk about going through like deep depression to attain these physiques. And I, I just don't think that that's necessary for the movie to be fantastic. I'm sure that you agree. Yeah, I agree. I, I, it'd be cool to see him kind of put in that work for that, but I'm fine with how he was. He and I respect that he yeah. took that approach to stay natural. And he has time to now because right you know with additional movies it's years until they come out so 
I think that he has additional time to develop the physique more, like you said. And he does look very fit in this movie. But yeah, this, there's probably way too many performance enhancers floating through Hollywood right now. Yeah. It's not necessary for... And I'm so I'm very into the fitness world and stuff. And if you're kind of interested, you as the listener, if you're interested in kind of diving in more of like the steroid use in Hollywood or like maybe what these actors are doing and stuff, you could check out this YouTube page called More Plates, More Dates. Uh, it's where this guy, his name's Derek. He kind of goes in and breaks down a bunch of steroids and stuff, whether it's people who have already come out and he looks at their blood work and stuff or um, people that he's speculating on. But he has a very good base of knowledge that he's coming from. And it's very interesting to kind of see his opinions on how he breaks down people's physiques. So if you're interested in that, you can go check out his page. Yeah, the so moving on to what we would keep about the film, which has kind of been the theme throughout this whole episode. We talked about all the things that we loved about it, and we've showered this movie in praise. But just to recap, um, I would keep the cinematography, the set design, the costuming, the makeup, the detective slash serial killer plot, the practical effects, the score is amazing, the acting's phenomenal. Pretty much all of the film. It's beautifully done. It's for me, basically a five-star film. His suit is awesome. The suit's so fantastic. The gadgets are littered throughout the suit, too. Like, I talked to Sierra about it. There's so many different uses of his utility belt in the movie. Like, I love this shot of adrenaline. He has like, three different a, flashlights. What a good idea. Three different styles of flashlight, basically, illuminating tools. The steroids are so cool. A lot of people thought it was Venom when the movie first came out. And it's adrenaline, not steroids. Did I say steroids? Yeah. And uh, the adrenaline is really cool. A lot of people thought it was venom, but I maintain that it was. I maintain that it was steroids because I feel like it was kind of <laughs> not steroids. I keep saying steroids, <laughs> but I I think it would. Andy, go, do you have something to tell us? <laughs> with these new alarms, but I I would I maintained it because I don't see Batman using venom, even though I know that there is a plot line where he uses venom, like. Your everyday Batman's not just using Venom to get back up from a fight. So I always saw it as adrenaline. That's what I thought it was, too. And I still think it after rewatching it. I think they but came like, out and, and stated that it was adrenaline yeah. and not But, bad. like, what a cool idea, right? Like, what, what a good idea. He knows he's going to be in these really tough battles. And he know that, like, at some point uh, someone might get the better of him. And that he's going to need a little extra boost. You know, what better way to do that than adrenaline-fueled rage. Because Batman plans ahead. And it's like I said with the three different light sources, he's planning ahead. Like, he's got a UV light in case he needs it. He's got the wand flashlight and a flare. Like, all that he's carrying on him at all times. But he also... It, the movie also shows that, like, yeah, even Batman's having trouble kind of handling these 10 assailants with shotguns. You know, like, it, it's not like he's just picking them off one by one really easy. Well, like they hold the camera shots on the action for a very long time, and it yeah. creates that feeling of realism. Like with the Dark Knight, they can use all these quick cuts to convince you he can engage a hundred people. But this movie, holding that realistic, those realistic takes and showing you all the action and fights, kind of like how Daredevil shows you all the hits. Like it has to be believable. You the know? opening fight scene. Ooh. Oh, it's so, so phenomenal. Good. So good. Yeah, he's just at one. I mean, there's a little like, bit. Bah, bah, bah. <laughs> I'm vengeance. <laughs> Oh snap! <laughs> you can you can upon rewatch you can catch a little bit of that stunt fighter like dancing like waiting for their chance to jump into the fight, but then he throws one guy into like the group of guys and knocks him down. And it's like oh, okay, like and from there you kind of like 
believe the whole thing if yeah you can't always look too closely because there's also, no realistic way to fight that many people at once yeah right exactly but then also like if i was one of those bad guys you know and i'm not a fighter you know i've haven't been in a fight with a superhero before and if one of them came in front of me like he did all decked out and he just knocked out supposedly our leader right I don't know how quick I would want to jump in, even if I was in a group. But your realistic you know? best chance is to hit him like a football team. Like, right. But that doesn't mean that's the first thing that goes yeah. in your mind, you know? Like, yeah. uh, I think most people's first thought is like self-preservation. Yeah. <laughs> you know? The last thing that, that I want to touch on for this movie, though, I don't... Um, and don't let me cut you off if you have anything else to say, but the last thing that I wanted to discuss was the production around this movie and it being affected by the pandemic. So the movie, they started filming actual test footage with the actors on stage. And I say that because pre-production goes on for a long time for movies. There's a lot of work that goes in, like we said, the months of designing the city of Scape of Gotham in the volume. So in January of 2020, they started filming test footage with Zoe and Robert Pattinson um, and then they, they start working on these initial scenes in the movie come what March of 2020 the pandemic hits and changes everything um, so they had a lot of an uphill battle making this huge blockbuster movie for the rest of what they had to wait to resume production so a lot of people aren't getting paid they had to bring everybody back and from then on like everyone's getting recurring COVID tests and the whole filming of the movie matt reeves is wearing like a mask goggles and a hat covered head to toe like for safety with the actors obviously their faces have to be present the extras faces have to be present um, because in this fictional world there is not a pandemic um, so you said they started in the beginning of 2020 january 2020 that's Tesla. crazy because the movie came out in march of 2022 despite uh, like the pandemic they yeah. were able to get it done so in that that's only frame. like two and a half years difference but they had like probably a year of all of that well it was slated i think originally to come out in october of 2021 which makes a lot more sense because it would have been coming still, out still i feel it, like two and a half years is like not that long it's to not. make a movie like this they got know? back like, on their feet really quick and yeah. they they took a lot of work from a lot of people it's very impressive especially because at one point robert pattinson got COVID as well which then delayed production even further because they couldn't film without him so yeah. then everyone's not working again for however long and you have to be extra safe with these things because there can be lawsuits and there can be fines if you bring him back too early or without all the proper precautions being followed so they had to go to all kinds of hoops on an already difficult movie to film and a huge blockbuster that to become a huge success with all those trials and tribulations is just really really incredible i, I would have loved for the movie to come out in october because it has the vibe of halloween and, right. the, and this movie starts on halloween night so I feel bad for them that they had to push their movie to March, mm -hmm. but I'm glad they didn't push it to the next October because we had to wait, would have had to wait for forever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's just something I think is noteworthy and worth uh, praise, you know, that they did everything safely the right way and came out with such a beautiful final product, but despite like, basically this is like a natural disaster. Like it's like an earthquake hit their movie set. It's just sure. the pandemic, you know, could have ruined everything for them. Yeah. It's already impressive what people can do and, making these movies and stuff and just to have to overcome all of that uh almost makes it better you know like, yeah definitely like, good job to all the people who've worked on this film um in i, I guess this i want to kind of jump back to the nitpicks real quick 
uh, this isn't my nitpick per se, but kind of in researching for this and then also talking with friends and stuff, um, they say like at the end, Batman never actually fought the Riddler um, and that for some reason that doesn't make it as good. Uh, like, we, like fist fought? Yeah, like exactly. I don't care at all. Like he kind of did fight them. He fought the followers of him, which is an extension of his ideology yeah. like i had no problem with that yeah. i think what they're missing too and this is even in a scene that i said he should cut out of the movie but at the end of the movie the joker is telling the riddler to calm down the, yeah. the riddler's like freaking out furious because the headline on the news is that it's like batman saves over a thousand people or something like that because the fight was that batman ruined riddler's plans and then he beats him and then he's frustrated for that reason right. so that's the that's the battle that we're seeing on screen yeah um, but to second all of your things that you would keep, same. Um, fantastic work, uh, set design, costume design, and all of that. Uh, this movie is definitely on top of my movie lists. Um, it's worthy of a two-hour my... episode. It's, yes. Yeah, yes. Hopefully everyone felt like listening this far, but we didn't want to cut ourselves short and do a disservice to something we love so much. Yeah, we were debating on this episode of like, should we try to fit it within that hour and kind of cut out some of the things that we want to talk about or should we just kind of let it flow? And we decided to go that route um, because it's something that we're very excited about. It was our favorite movie from last year and who knows when we're going to have the opportunity to kind of like sit down and talk about all this again. So we'd be sitting on information almost if we kind of held back so we wanted to let it all out yeah let us know in the comments if you would want us to do scene breakdowns because that's something i could see us doing for this movie is taking the the crime scene even Mm -hmm. or plenty of other scenes in the movie and just looking at it step by step and talking about interpretations for it that'd be a really cool be fun episode yeah i would love to do something like that with really any movie you know um but yeah that's everything I got. Do you got anything else? That's all I wanted to say. Thank you so much for listening. If you, especially if you've listened this far, please hit the like and subscribe buttons and share us with friends and family. Yeah, we post every Monday and Thursday this week. You guys got two really long episodes. So uh, not all of them are this long, but we definitely enjoy doing this. We're on TikTok, YouTube, Instagram, Facebook. Uh, we post our full episodes on YouTube and Spotify and all the other podcast platforms. So be sure to go check those out as well. And that's, that's a wrap. wrap.